Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 31 of the podcast, the topic is the future of cultured meat. Our guest is David Brandis, managing director and co-founder of Peace of Meat. In this conversation, we talk about the technology of cell-based cultured meat, the sustainability benefits of removing animals from food production, consumer trust, regulatory forces, disruption, and the future of food tech. A word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's why David, how are you doing today? Hey, Tron. Very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you. I thought we would start with um, a couple of things about yourself. You're an exciting guy. Um, you. you are in Belgium, possibly from Belgium. Well, we can work on that. I'm not entirely sure. I think we talked about that. But you're the managing director of Piece of Meat, uh, which we'll get into. You worked at McKinsey. You worked in the food sector. You worked at Procter & Gamble. Um, I believe you have a, a, a master in, uh, from a German university. Is that right? Yeah, as well as uh, another one, which we'll probably come to when working through the bio. Yeah, um, yeah you have a, a dual master. I saw that from, from Berkeley. Look. You've done a lot of exciting things. What in your background prompted you to get to where you are today, founding a, a company in an excited spa, uh, exciting space of cultured meat? Yeah, thank you, Trond. I mean, um, a good question. Um, as an outside observer, you probably always have a better idea than, uh, than uh, asking yourself actually that question. But when I reflect a little bit on my life, I don't think there was you know, one event uh, that, that kind of set forward a certain path, but really a mix of very, very diverse events, right? So even when, when, when listening to your podcast, uh, there are great personali- personalities on the show that have a very specific skill in, you know, a, a certain type of coding or you talked about the engines of the future. In my case, I think I've always strived to um, benefit from a very broad exposure, both culturally, but also uh, co- contextually and content-wise. So. Um, as you've mentioned before, so I started my career, uh, or let's say, let's start with the, maybe the academical part. So I did study um, a dual degree. So I studied industrial engineering um, and at the same time, marine biology. So, and that's just out of interest, right? So I'm very interested in, uh, in, in, in the biology of the ocean, um, in, uh, in the ecology uh, of the ocean, in, 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 in ocean ecosystems. Um, so I was never afraid to just literally jump into a completely new topic, even without having a particular background uh, in that. Um, and it's funny you say that you yeah. don't have a particular background, but it, everything makes a lot more sense to me now. You have a, a background, you're a master in marine biology and, yeah. uh, you know, and a master in engineering. Now everything for me makes sense because I was going to ask you, what exactly, wh- where are you studying you know, in these two universities? And it makes yeah, a little yeah. bit more sense to me now. So that's Look, interesting. I'm, I think I'm, I'm going after the things that excite me and uh, and that I think have a lasting impact for our planet. Uh, and then I and then I figure out you know how to get active in that space. Uh, I'm not I'm not particularly scared of of any of any barriers of entry. Um, you know, for example, obviously you know the field that I'm operating in 
um, uh, today in cultured meat might seem as, 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 as rather frightening and very complex to the outside observer. And it is lots of biology involved, uh, lots of um, engineering, including upscaling and bioreactors involved. Um, you know, food science is a big part. You're getting to market regulation, uh, incredibly complex field. Um, but nevertheless, and maybe even because of that, uh, very exciting to me. And uh, probably due to my previous um, experiences in so diverse fields, I never had a particular, um, uh, I always had a particular curiosity and was never particularly scared uh, to jump into such a new and complex field and, and, and just, you know, um, establish myself in, in, the, in that new world. And it also goes for, for traveling. So I think I've now uh, traveled 114 uh, countries. That was all pre-COVID. <laughs> so let's see how that will continue. Uh, have been to probably some of the most remote places uh, on earth out of interest. And I don't think that wow. there are any barriers that should hold us back. And knowledge is also not one of them. That's, um, that's interesting. So listen, I am thrilled to discuss this fascinating new, uh, you know, area of, of the food system that you are innovating in. And I wanted to, for the benefit of not just listeners, but, but myself, can you just give us a, a good sense of how has this space emerged? I mean, what I know is the first cultured meat company, uh, I believe it was, it was called, uh, or is called Moza Meat, was founded in 2013, which is only seven years ago. The world's first hamburger made by growing cow cells rather, by, rather than sort of slaughtering an animal and, and, and all that uh, stuff. And the space, you know, according to what I uh, have read, has now around about 40 companies. What are you doing differently from what they were started out with in, mm -hmm. in 2013? And what have you learned about this space and what is going on in this space? I mean, 40 companies is still not massive because these are smaller companies, I understand it, right? So the, the meat sector is, you know, is, uh, well, you explain yeah. how it's structured, but certainly it has a lot of conglomerates, a lot of very big players. Yeah, and it has big players, um, but maybe less so. Uh, many big brands, uh, less con conglomerates behind those brands, as it is in, often in consumer goods. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about cultured meat, uh, the development of, of that industry, and also why it came into being in the first place. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and, and I think I would have to take probably one or two steps back um, before, di di before, before dissecting um, really the industry and... and, and and diving into the evolution of, of itself. So, you know, why, why are we in this at all, right? Why, why is there a need for cultured meat? Why is there a need for alternative proteins? Um, we know, and it's common knowledge that by the year uh, 2050, we'll have almost 10 billion people uh, globally, um, mainly coming out of a growing middle class in India and in, in China. Um, and, and this growing middle class combined with an overall global growth of population um, leads to an almost um, double uh, doubling need of, of proteins uh, taken in globally, right? If now at the yeah. same time you understand that 70% of all agrable land, uh, sorry, of, of all available land globally is used for agriculture and 70% of that agriculture land again is used for animal agriculture, either for growing livestock or for growing feed for livestock, you just come to understand that there is no more space, right? So yes, yeah. we have a doubling need of a demand of, of proteins, but we have no more space available. So what are our options? We can make more space, 
that means cutting down rainforests or um, or basically fitting more animals in a in a in a unit of space right which which obviously comes at the cost of uh, of animal welfare um, uh, or we need new alternatives of proteins right and and I think that's that's uh, that's really what uh, what the industry is contributing to now what are these alternatives on the market um, we've, we've we've seen in, in, in the early 2000s the first plant-based um, patties um, mainly bean-based patties coming to the market uh, in the year early early 2010 to 2015 you've had great advancements of players such as beyond meat and impossible foods who really on the molecular level have understood how meat is um, uh, in, uh, is is constructed and mimicked that with plants um, but they were pushing the boundary already very far so let's say on a matrix of meat like look and meat like taste they're let's say halfway there but they're already using 23 ingredients, partly genetic modifications. So we're really maxing out our possibilities here. Uh, and but but uh, just yeah. stop for a second. So uh -huh. Impossible Foods, for instance, I mean, they're taking all the media attention and everybody thinks that it is plant-based simulation of meat. Uh, yep. I mean, at least that's my assumption is that a lot of people have kind of without maybe even tasting it more than once, they are assuming that that is the future. You are involved in a quite different space uh, yeah. you know, in the market. Why is it that you have chosen to pursue, I guess, the considerably you know, more challenging path of, yeah. of truly engineering um, the production of, of actual of meat instead of pursuing this plant-based uh, yeah. protein path? Yeah, and that is precisely because we believe that those companies that are already plant-based companies, Impossible Beyond, that are already so advanced uh, in their product development, still do not um, uh, achieve the retainment uh, of, of meat-eating customers, right? They attract them. You want to eat it once. You want to try this new Beyond Burger that everybody's talking about. But then you're defaulting back to your regular steak, to your regular burger, because you're missing this meatiness. Uh, of, of of a product that, that you're so much craving for, right? And and and, and can, can we stop at that? Because I yeah. think it's fascinating the meatiness of the product. What are we talking about? You are now a bit of an expert, I would say, in in what meatiness is. Tell me, what is this thing that makes you know? I I am a little bit of a meat eater, right? So I I love my fillet. Uh, you know, when I feel like I can afford it, I buy the most expensive uh, one I can find that is the softest meat, uh, and I really enjoy it. So I, I would be clearly in that camp that I would really, really miss meat. Mm -hmm. and, but I have started to eat much, much less of it. But I have a very clear sense, I think, of what it tastes like. But I don't know if, yeah. if I could even describe it. How do you describe this meatiness? Yeah, so first of all, uh, congratulations to your reduced uh, meat uh, consumption. I think that's already <laughs> a great first step. Um, and let's describe, let's try to describe meatiness. It's, it's really difficult. So, so you can describe it, um, on a, um, kind of a neuroscientific level, um, or from a food science perspective, right? And then okay. there's, and then there's potentially also an emotional dimension that is, that is just, you know, uh, very, um, very subjective. Um, but from a, from a food science perspective, meatiness comes from lipids, yeah? so fat, uh, fat uh, lipids that are released out of a cell in the moment you bite on that cell 
interacting with your saliva and with the outer matrix. So in this case, protein, right? The muscle of the product or also plants uh, can also be, can also be an outer matrix. And, and then this uh, so-called uh, Maillard reflex, uh, um, um, Maillard effect kicks in. Uh, and, um, and a certain, you know, and then, and then it becomes very difficult to explain, right? Because then we're entering the kind of the neuroscientific, um, 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 dimension where potential home hormones will be set free, uh, that are, that are reacting in your, with your synapses and a certain kind of pleasure and satisfaction, um, um, it will be the result that you're experiencing when, uh, you know, when, when when releasing those lipids um, uh, by chewing in your mouth. Wow. And the emotional part, how do you substitute that? Because, and, and I don't really yeah. know, I, I, I probably, I haven't, I'm embarrassed to say I have not reflected enough about this because, you know, I mean, I used to be a wine writer. I have reflected a lot about different things and I thought that I knew what I liked and I, but I'm far less able to describe why I like a good piece of meat. Um, but certainly on the emotional level, how do you guys tackle that aspect of it? Yeah. So, so what we're doing in cultured meats uh, and in cultured fats is really replicating meats and fats on a molecular and cellular level, right? So you can, you can replicate taste on a molecular level, and that is what's Beyond Meats and Impossible Foods and others uh, are trying to, and hence are using 23 and plus ingredients. But we want to create those very same cells. Yeah, in a first laboratory environment and an upscaled environment, um, so that we actually don't have to mimic anything or trick your brain into anything. We're just producing the exact same product using a different production system, which is not a cow, but uh, a bioreactor. And what is the barrier there for consumers to accept that? Uh, yeah. Why is it, or, or even is it even a problem do most consumers, in your mind, as we're going forward into sort of the next decade, is it going to be relevant to consumers whether this at one point was on the live cow that was kind of, you know, I guess in the imaginary of people running around freely uh, or uh, whether it is truly just engineered, I guess, in a lab, you know, cold, uh, you know, cold and hygienic? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, one thing um, uh, that I think uh, can can be can be said for sure is that the consumption and the demand for uh, for beef coming from cattle will fall drastically, right? So there's, for example, a very uh, interesting study from uh, Rethink X, uh, Food and Agriculture, that uh, predicts that by 2030 the demand for cow products will have fallen by 70 percent, meaning you will probably still be able to eat the expensive piece of steak that you're buying today. Um, but the more commoditized meats, the, the, the cheaper meats that are coming from, uh, from animal mass farming being imported uh, from low-cost countries sometimes, those will be replaced, but the consumer will, pro will nevertheless um, demand a certain culinary experience, right? Um, and, 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 and that's kind and, of... And why is this study claiming that it will go down by seven? That's an astounding claim. I hadn't heard that before. Is that kind of commonplace in the industry to have the sense that they are right? And, and what are they basing that claim on? I think it's pretty common sense. I, I mean, um, it's, it might be on the high side. So there are different studies, uh, for example, a, a very um, frequently quoted one from A.T. Kearney, another consulting house, um, 
that says that by um, and I would have to yes here um, that says that by 2040 the the overall share of conventional meat will go down from today it's 90 so 90 percent conventional meat 10 percent plant based meat that's 2025 and it will go down to 40 percent right so less than half. Um, now that's a reduction from 90% to 40%. So that is also actually an, uh, an over 50% reduction, which is in line. And, and we'll, we'll try to link up these, these reports for, uh, you know, in, uh, in the show notes for the benefit of the readers, but I'm just trying to go for the driving forces behind this. I mean, are you, is it, is it purely just because it just won't be available given the numbers we were talking about earlier, or is there also something about the degradation of the environment that's going to actually make it less possible to even yeah. sustain the levels we have today I think in terms of animal production? It's a mix of things. It's availability of new products that weren't there before, uh, products that have been specifically designed by scientists to meet a specific demand uh, of the consumer, which was only possible by exploiting um, either animals or plants um, before. And in the case of plants, not very meaty tasty, <laughs> not plants yeah. that would not carry a meaty taste. Um, but also, you know, the political and regulative environment and dimension, I think, is, is not to be underestimated. So uh, today, um, a, 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 meat pea, a meat product um, in the U.S. is being subsidized by 30 percent um, from the um, um, U.S. government. Uh, if you take that away, then it also just won't be cost effective anymore to offer um let's say livestock or conventional meats um, in mass markets, if at the same time um, uh, substitutions become better and cheaper. But, but uh, okay, so let's talk about the regulatory environment. And I, and I know that that must be something you're looking into. You, you know, you're currently based in the EU. Yeah. There are also farm subsidies in the EU. Farm subsidies is famously kind of, you know, every, every country, uh, you know, at least pre-COVID signed up to WTO and, you know, we're all, you know, gung-ho about globalization and, you know, no barriers to trade and all of that stuff. But when it comes to farm subsidies, everybody cheats. Yeah. So what, what is it that tells you or, or the market that these farm subsidies for meat specifically are going to diminish? What is that based on? Oh, I think this is based on a range of EU-wide, um, um, you know, uh, policies and, uh, and and projects. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, for, for for example, the Paris Climate Climate Accords, where we're saying that you know we want to take what is it five gigatons of, of CO two out of the environment. Food systems right. have the highest impact. Yeah. On um, on CO two in the environment, animal farming yeah. alone accounts for more. Um, then all of the transportation um, means together um, uh, in, in terms of uh, CO2 emissions. Um, mm. So I think there's, there's going to be a natural uh, support uh, for alternative means of, of protein production if uh, governments really want to reach their um, you know, ecology, ecology and sustainability targets. Um, because it's well, uh, and that varies politically, then of course, right? So, I mean, in the U.S., we have a presidential election coming up, and you know <laughs> that will be very hugely consequential for which way the U.S., which is a massive market, goes in terms of this kind of regulatory environment, right? Um, but let's yeah. talk about the broader challenges that you're facing as a as an industry, not just the, the well, the, the entire meat producing industry, but. There is a cost to produce challenge for you in cultured meats as well, right? The growth medium, from yeah. what I understand, is very expensive. 
uh, some figures I saw were that it can cost around $400 per liter, uh, the growth medium uh, as of now. So w w what is what are you doing to address those costs? And then, of course, you have the consumer attitudes, which uh, you would need to work on or, or consumers would need to work on themselves. Uh, there's food safety, obviously, on both sides. There's food safety of the regular meat production. There's food safety of your new product. Um, and uh, if you take the U.S., the FDA had promised regulational guidance on this in 2019, but that never came. So... Um, Perhaps no surprise in the Trump administration that that kind of guidance didn't show up. But cellular agriculture hasn't exactly been a regulatory priority in in really in any uh, country. Where are you the most optimistic that this is going to reach a breakthrough? So you know, for were, for cultured meat. Yeah. So there were two points here, right? Price and then uh, regulatory environment. So let's let's right. let's, let's tackle the regulatory environment and then talk about. Uh, price as well. That's um, fair enough. These are, I think, just the two biggest challenges that you're facing. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You well, correct me if I'm wrong. And there are upscaling challenges in, in, and the consumer acceptance, as you mentioned. But so yeah. on, on the on the regulatory environment, I think so. For one, um, um, in the U.S., in Europe, and in Singapore, there are frameworks for um, novel food. Um, regulation uh, that are specifically tailored uh, towards uh, cultured meat regulation. Uh, and that's yeah. a great thing already, right? So that's, that's the first good news. Um, European Food Safety Agency is regulating um, you know, new foods, including cultured meats. FDA and FSDA uh, in the US are at uh, both um, taking over the regulation um, for cultured meat and fish uh, in, different, in different parts. Um, and the Singaporean Food Agency um, is, uh, you know, regulating for the Singaporean market. Now, obviously, all three, um, let's say, geographical entities um, are struggling with a range of different adverse factors, right? In the US, you have a lot of lobby, so, so traditional sure. livestock meat lobby. The, U the EU is very fragmented, um, so it is not easy to reach an accord across all the different countries in the EU. Um, and we believe that in Singapore, for example, and other special economic zones as well, uh, we will see the first breakthroughs already as of late 2021, 2022. Singapore has been extremely welcoming when, um, uh, you know, regulating cultured meat. They're actually actively reaching out to cultured meat companies, inviting them to start the regulatory approval process. Imagine that. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it can take um, you know, as little as six months to regulate uh, cultured meat if you have all the pre-work done. Uh, and we can talk about what that means when we talk about the production process and you know, the value chain. Um, and in the EU, um, it is believed that the whole process from application to finish will take one and a half years, which is, uh, we believe that by end of 2023, um, you will see the first products also in the EU. So, so, but what all of that means is uh, none of these companies are in the true market yet. Exactly. Yeah. None so of none of these forty companies are 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 in the position, and that's of course the smart strategy, I guess, of Impossible Foods is that because for some reason their product it was much easier to re to approve and and it's uh, and it's in market. Of course, yeah. I mean, because it's it's not a novel food, right? It's plants. Um, yeah. These forty companies don't have product in market. 
Uh, some might be further uh, when it comes to regulation, uh, some, some, some uh, a bit behind. Um, the advantage or the strategy that we are following that gives us a certain advantage is that we are a B2B supplier um, of a cultured ingredient, in this case, fat, because that's triggering all the meatiness that we just talked about that is missing in yeah. plant-based products. So we are um, engaging already today in uh, commercial um, you know, joint developments uh, with large food brands in order to jointly bring together a product that contains cultured meat in the market in 2023. But yes, from a consumer perspective, you don't find it on shelves today. You might find it at specialty restaurants, you know, as early as late 2021, um, but uh, only in, you know, very, very small scale tastings and, and, and almost, you know, scientific taste panels. Uh, you will be wow. So I love this perspective. You're actually in the business of providing fats. You're in the business of fat. That's it. But, but you know, in the, in, the, in the good fat category, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, right? The, the, the idea is you're providing an ingredient that, 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 that is meatiness and, and, and fat. That's interesting. Well, how do you, how do you move forward with, with this product which is going to take quite long? What are kind of the things that keep you up at night making that progress? Because we talked about some of these more company-specific challenges that you also have in terms of scaling up the production, dealing with, uh, you know, the currently, you know, the difficult um, environment ar around the fact that the, the, the costs you have of production obviously need to change for you to be able to scale. Like if someone today said, we are the Singaporean government, welcome to the meat market, um, you know, we need uh, 100,000, you know, oh. units every oh. week. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good luck. So, you know, so, so where are the challenges? Um, there, and, and, and then maybe we can also come back to the cost, right? But the technical challenges are, are there, right? So first you need uh, to develop a cell line. Cell line is the, is the, start, the starter cell, right? The, the first cell that, uh, that you will then proliferate, meaning you double those cells, not only one, but hundreds of times. So that uh, you you know out of one cell you basically produce billions, which translates into the biomass um, that you're turning into a food product in the end. Um, so so you need that first cell line. There are some companies that are using um, you know gene editing uh, technologies such as CRISPR-Cas, and then and then you you know you, you have to ask yourself is that going to be a accepted by the consumer and in which geography, and b will it be accepted by the regulator? So we have made an early choice not to use any genetic modifi modified uh, cells. Um, and, 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 and that is kind of the first, uh, I think, decision that you need to take. And those cells also need to be very robust and large and grow in high density. They need to grow in suspension, right? So they should not adhere to a surface, which is the natural tendency of cells, but gives you a horrible... Um, uh, efficiency when harvesting your bioreactor later because you can just scrape surfaces but not harvest the whole volume. So you need to have cells that grow in suspension. And that's already very difficult to find a cell and train a cell into uh, you know, growing in suspension at high volumes, continuous, so that you can multiply them indefinitely um, and all of that without genetic modification. So that's the first thing we cracked also, uh, you know, thanks to our uh, excellent chief science officer, uh, so I have a question about that, uh, mm -hmm. David, just in case people aren't fully aware of this, but obviously here, 
the Europe versus the U.S. and Asia distinction is is really relevant, right? Because the the sort of the regulatory openness to CRISPR Cas and and yeah. you know that type of gene editing is obviously uh, a lot different in the U.S. from what it is in in Europe. Yes, and in Asia. So. So what's for sure, uh, I mean, certainly in Europe, CRISPR-Cas and gene editing in general in plants uh, is not allowed um, yeah, in Europe. Uh, and you can do it in the US, but it's to my understanding, not 100% accepted by the consumer yet. So, um, I mean, there might be some consumers who are a bit wary about it. But then in the in Asia, when I talk to you know potential uh, Asian customers, they love it. They say we prefer we prefer you know GMO food over anything else. So so there is a huge uh, distinction to be made um, uh, based on market. Um, that's correct. But those are this is genetic modification of plants, right? Now we're talking about animal cells, and we don't know yet how the regulator will react to that. So we just want to take the safe path here, both for consumer accept uh, uh, you know. Uh, acceptance and regulations and opt for a non-genetically modified product in all markets. Yeah, and I do think that is a huge distinction. Personally, I I, I make a, a very big distinction between things that are, I guess, part of the plant system and part of the animal exactly. system. And you know, obviously anything touching the human germline, so things that would change humans is 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 a whole other ethical category. But you could also think about the uh, precautionary principle when it comes to animal cells overall, at least, like you said, animal cells that, that then come in direct contact with, with humans uh, later. Well, these are big sort of synthetic biology, so society-wide challenges that you're, facing, you know, that you're facing as well. How is synthetic biology generally, um, how, how is it for you to find talent in that field? Given, given that we just said, you know, it's not given that any of these approaches really are going to be fully allowed. So I can't help but think that synthetic biology in Europe overall has been hampered by, by some of these things. And, and it must be difficult to find talent that yeah. A, is able to, and two, is willing to work on this. Uh, you know, Even though you are putting in place these sort of choices, which I guess are a mix of ethical and strategic choices for you. Yeah, let me, let me answer that. But first of all, I have to say, uh, I'm always getting, I, I'm a very structured person. I'm always getting three questions. I'm answering one. I'm coming back to the other ones and we already have the next one. So I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, let's go back. To, we, we can also handle the, the, the pricing issue. I, I am interested well, no, in no, this. That was, that, was a joke. that was a joke, Tron. Uh, that was a joke. Well, I just get, I get very excited by this, uh, this yeah. area. Yeah, that's yeah, why. Yeah. No, no, completely, completely right. Um, so, how do we find talent, right? I think it's an excellent question because, so a couple of factors. One, um, we see a huge, I mean, not just us, right? There's, I think there's a huge trend globally of employees looking for purpose, right? It's purpose over, uh, let's say, profit. Um, and, 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 that is, and that is what we see. Also, it's uh, become clear now um, or, 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 or widely known that Cultured meat uh, is going to be a technology that has a huge potential for, you know, uh, ecological com contribution and thus is a, is a purposeful field. So we do see a lot of, um, um, you know, interest uh, coming our way. However, um, you know, you, there, there are very few universities where you can actually study anything that is specifically cultured meat related. 
right? You mentioned that uh, Mark Post in 2014 at the University of Maastricht back then presented um, the first cultured meat uh, burger, which is actually, which is obviously, you know, a milestone event or, or the starting point for, for this whole industry. That is one university, for example, where you can, you know, learn a thing or two about cultured meats. There are, there are a couple of other universities, but it's, it's not very, it's, it's not a field that is, that is yet, you know, broadly available for students. So we need to take a lot of, let's say, cross entrance from the human sciences, for example, right? From, um, um, organoid, um, um, uh, research. Um, and also in the computing space, um, there's a lot of talent uh, needed when it comes to optimizing bioprocesses and, and bioreactors. Now we have a, a quite, we're in a quite lucky situation, a beneficial situation being located in Flanders. So in the northern part of Belgium, Belgium, there are two other cultured meat companies uh, that are doing a fantastic job. So Mosa Meat that we talked about uh, in Maastricht and, um, and, and Meatable. Uh, and you can tour all three of those companies, so Mosa Meat, uh, Meatable and us, you know, I think three and a half hours round trip. So that's amazing. There is a full ecosystem in Europe uh, being established in that part of Europe, and we see a lot of talent flowing, you know, uh, either way. Plus, there are a bunch of universities, in our case, Catholic University of Leuven, that has a, uh, you know, a, a fantastic um, uh, scientific faculty uh, on, on relevant fields. Uh, so I think there is a lot of exchange happening, and also we we do see uh, a lot of U.S. talent also, uh, you know, being interested in positions in Europe. Um, potentially because of the current political environment and, and the opportunities that are forming in Europe right now. Hmm. Well, let's go back then to, to the, the, the pricing issue. How are you dealing with, uh, with uh, the growing container, the, pr the prices of actually growing each unit of, of, of meat? Yeah, yeah, I like that you said growing each unit of meat uh, and because that, that brings me to a point that is, that is very important. So we're at piece of meat, not growing units of meat, but volumes of meat, right? So, so if you think about yeah, yeah, yeah right. Meat, so, uh, uh, but but the, so to explain how this whole works because the the growth medium, what mm -hmm. is it exactly that you are buying? How what are you growing this in, and why does that come in volume? So it you know yeah. it, this costs four hundred dollars per liter. Is it a liquid type growth medium? Yeah, I, I, I want to come back to that, but because you said unit, it's super important because there are some companies that are growing units, they're growing steaks, right? Three-dimensional yes. pieces of meat, and they have yeah. a, a That's actually what more, I thought you were growing, yeah, but you're not. Exactly. They have a little bit of a more complex production system and getting yeah. to their price to a you know unit economic that is attractive to a consumer and comparable with uh, livestock uh, alternatives is a bit more complex uh, than what we're doing. So we have the advantage that we really, you know, I mean, simplifying now, but that we really only need um, the growth media. So the starting cells, the growth media and the bioreactor system. If you then want to create three-dimensional pieces of meat, you then need also what's called the scaffolding, where you seed the cells onto a um, matrix yeah, or a, a kind of a skeleton uh, in order to then form uh, a, a meat product. Now, because we don't have to do that, uh, our approach is a bit prag more pragmatic and let's break down the cost drivers. The growth factors that you mentioned, so the media, in our case, um, we're now at a price point of uh, $27.1 per liter. Um, so it's, 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 it's by, a, by a larger margin um, below 
um, uh, what, what you quoted. And obviously, um, we're bringing that price even uh, lower. It's also important to say that our growth media today does not include what's called um, FBS, so fetal bovine serum. This is an, a, 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 a constituent of, of media that is traditionally used in the biopharmaceutical world. We have replaced um, this element and we're not using any animal-derived um, products in our growth media. We're bringing this uh, cost per liter down from 27.1 to $2.50 per liter by 2025 and to 60 cents by 2028. So there's a kind of a five-step process um, behind this cost reduction. Um, first of all, the growth factors, which are the most expensive part of the media. So for example, TGF, FGF beta, this is what we will produce and we are already, are, are already producing in-house without sourcing it on the market. Um, and we have developed a quite efficient process in order to do so. Other companies are actually doing the same. Um, and then there is a, you know, a couple of biological optimizations, optimizations in the bioprocess and also market driven optimizations that will bring down the price further. So this is the variable cost. And then there's the OPEX, uh, the CAPEX cost, which is actually the bioreactors that we'll have to buy. Got it. Would you uh, kindly join me in sort of, uh, well, first off, looking a little bit at the space of 40 startups and, and speculating what might happen in, in that space and then forecasting from there into the future, looking throughout this next decade, mm -hmm. what, what sort of market um, position do you think these companies eventually will be able to take in the market? You know, is it a 10% fraction? Is it a 2% fraction? Or, or is it actually taken over? But let's start with the startups. So there's 40 startups there today. Is it likely that these 40 startups, uh, you know, is it just going to kind of increase? There's going to be some more startups and then eventually you'll, you'll, you'll go to market. Or are you going to partner and, and there's going to be M&A and, and restructuring of this market? Yeah. Are the traditional meat producers going to be producing both engineered meat and regular food stock? Or are there going to be intermediaries? Yeah. Is this a subscription? Like what are the business model? Are, are you basically yeah. a subscription product? Are you going to partner with all these meal kits? H how do you see this? space evolving and is it at all similar to the business of regular farm grown meat yeah okay so first of I, all i again have three questions yes i like it uh, so um uh, first of all let's look a bit into how the space evolved right um and uh, it's interesting to, to see that because as, as you mentioned, 2014, first burger, Mosa Meat formed, company called Memphis Meats formed that raised, I think, 190 billion, uh, no, million, of course, uh, in their, in their uh, Series B, which is massive, four times more than uh, you know, WeWork or, or Uber raised at a similar round. Um, and, and those were companies that were doing, let's say, the full Monty, right? So everything from uh, the cells to the bioreactors to the final food product and the branding and then the marketing. At least that's the vision because we know that those products are not on the market yet. Um, now, as it is uh, typical for innovation uh, life cycles, um, as, the, as the space matures and more talent is available, more funding is available, the industry gets more specialized, right? Now you see players that are specializing on a certain type of meat uh, or fat in our case, so along the product angle or along the value chain angle on a certain step of the value chain, producing a bioreactor that is good for large-scale volume production, producing the cell lines only, right? Um, uh, producing the growth factors that we just talked about. So, so now you already see a uh, very strong specialization, but how will it look like in the future? So 
as I said, 2022, 2023, first products on the market, unstructured product yet. So hybrids, uh, like the ones that we're working on. Um, and then as of, I believe 2040, you will have three dimensional meats at scale and at cost in the market. So these full cut meats and steaks and chops. Um, but, but how will the business model and the industry evolve, right? So for one, I think we will have local production facilities, let's say regional production facilities, right? Um, so in every big, uh, agglomeration of, of, of a population, um, urban area, you will have a bioreactor park of, for example, uh, you know, 10 to 50, a hundred thousand liter bioreactors that are producing meat. Uh, and it's very comparable to the meat, to the meat, to the uh, beer brewery landscape you had today. So these are microbreweries essentially. These are microbreweries. And what happened in the last 50 years to the microbreweries? Trond? Ah, oh, now you're quizzing me. Uh, well, <laughs> Well, well. First off, they uh, well they were bought out, of course, uh, yeah. and they uh, continue to operate as brands because they are beneficial branding wise for the larger corporations. Uh, so it's a whole interesting yeah. but they situation are now there. Owned either by Diageo or ABNBF, right? So that's the consolidation yeah. then that is taking place because you need massive capital in order to uh, you know establish a first oligopolistic and then duopolistic and then maybe even monopolistic market. But, so that's but, but uh, inform me, correct me if I'm wrong here. These are not going to be home-based 3D printed production yeah. uh, facilities. It's never going to, or it's going to take a while before you have the sci-fi reality of literally printing your own meat. So that is then, uh, I think, another very interesting avenue in a, in a, in a, in a let's say, B2C play, um, or even C2C if you want. Um, so there are very interesting technologies and startups around printing um, meats in a, in a 3D bioprinter. And you could effectively use, so, so you could effectively use uh, cultured fat and cultured meat in order to feed those printers um, with, you know, as, as material, and then they're uh, printing the meat. And you could even, even uh, and now we're talking, you know, really far out in the future, but, but potentially produce your own cultured meat biomass in your own backyard by having a you know cupboard sized um, bioreactor in, in in your cellar maybe um, and and then from there you take you know the biomass you feed it into your 3D bioprinter and and you have a stake and 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 that's totally a vision that 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 we think is possible uh, in a little bit of time. Well, so that's interesting to me, and it brings us back to this idea of uh, terroir and meatiness, because I think when we're talking about this emotional aspect, and, and possibly beyond emotional, it, it is the sense that people have, that certainly I have, of, of this kind of primordial feeling that, you know, once upon a time there was nature, nature was good, and I was walking bare feet, mm -hmm. and then, you know, all of these good things happened to me, right? So th there is this sense of terroir, and where is things, you know, in the EU, this is, uh, uh, the origin principle is, is stands very, very strong when it comes to food production. So I was wondering, uh, you know, so they actually have domesticated this terroir concept, this idea of things tasting a different way, but more importantly, in a regulatory context, you have to stamp it as to where it came from, whether it tastes that way or not. H how is that going to evolve? And, and, and I guess what you just said, if I was able 
to in some meaningful way use my own biomass and then produce my own food, mm -hmm. then ostensibly I would have my own stamp on this food and presumably it could taste something similar to what I would want it to taste, yet it would taste like my garden or something. And, and there's something yeah. about that. How realistic is that um, in terms of all kinds of food production? The, the, the yeah. fact that individuals could start producing their own stamp on, on their own food. So there might be a, um, let's say an artsy scene forming where it, it, indeed individuals are producing their own stamps on their own food and then marketing that, um, you know, on, on platforms as a, as a blueprint for download. Um, but, but now we're getting into a very interesting field, which is, um, food as a software, right? Where you might have yes. a, a database, a database of, um, you know, of blueprints for different cell lines, for different flavor profiles, for different bioprinting um, structures um, that companies are offering and that you can then just you know download. And then now you were at the subscription model, which you, which you mentioned as part of your question, which you can download yeah. and subscribe to in order to produce your bespoke uh, you know, food product uh, whenever you want it and however you want it. But, but one of the barriers there, and I wanted to kind of get to that question, um, you know, I have a background in standardization, and one of the things for scalability is, is standardization. And, and I have understood that in the synthetic biology industry overall, that's one of the areas where one hasn't gotten that far. So, so both in terms of sort of standardizing what's going on, in other words, yeah. the engineering process is going into it, but also in terms of communicating across and creating these platforms, because it's all nice to talk about, uh, you know, subscription models and all that. But what people don't quite realize is, you know, in the software industry, we have gone through, and I have been part of that evolution, there has been decades worth of negotiation, even just to come up with common interoperability avenues and, yeah. and even just operating systems that, that are kind of valid across platforms, that took a long time. That took and they're a currently long time. And, 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 I mean, I don't, have, I don't share your same depth of, of, of background when it comes to standardization, but I'm thinking about phone chargers, right? Apple systems, Microsoft systems. Um, yeah, and, and we're, we're not there yet, but the EU has been trying for, the, yeah. for a decade now to exactly. get to a common charger. Exactly. Right. So we're not even at the common charger. Um, and, and maybe it's also, I mean, and we're definitely not there when it comes to, you know, uh, cultured meat uh, applications. I mean, we talked about all the cell lines and the bioreactors. We don't even know what the best practice standard is yet, right? So it would be way too early to talk about standardization. But maybe, you know, some things don't need to be or maybe shouldn't even be standardized, right? So what if you now developed a certain um, blueprint for food production, um, you patented and it becomes standardized. Now you have, you know, now you have the food production monopole for, uh, you know, producing forty percent of all proteins uh, consumed globally. Um, not sure if that is a desirable uh, outlook, uh, and if so, then it would have to be managed, you know, uh, very very carefully. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I guess I'm bringing this up partly because it's obviously a business opportunity, partly it's looking into the future. But I'm also thinking, you know, I also have the mindset of a regulator. I've been working in governments and I have worked in the EU. And mm -hmm. what strikes me is this is not an easy thing to regulate because obviously these times in COVID times, you'd want to kind of, you know, spearhead whatever innovation you can come up with because we need growth. But on the other hand, there are some really serious issues involved here if you get this very wrong. Wouldn't you agree? 
I mean, it can't just be so, a free-for-all in are, every direction. So, so you're talking about risks? Um, um, uh, risks in, involved with kind of not fully understanding what all of these things are leading to. Yeah. In other words, you know, it's nice as long as, you know, the cat's out of the box, but you can still catch the cat. But so the moment you have unleashed something that can't be stopped in a way, then you, as a regulator at least, you have made a choice. Yeah, I'm going to narrow this uh, the answer down to cultured meat applications only. Um, sure. And, and we'll have to say that the risk might be perceived as such, but what we're doing is multiplying cells in a very controlled environment through a very right. controlled process. If you compare that to a slaughterhouse um, with all sorts of um, you know, bacterial contamination, E. coli viral contamination, COVID can survive 30 years in a frozen piece of meat. Yeah, so 30 years that's, after. That's <laughs> scary to think about. And, and it might even have evolved from a zoonotic transmission, meaning coming from you know, an animal into uh, another, another animal. So many theories about that one, so that, let me get into that. And then uh, finally swapping over to a human population you don't have those risks involved uh, in cultured meat because of the controlled environment. Um, no insulins. Um, so yes, there might be a perceived risk, but if you compare that to our food system today, I think it's manageable and it's actually worth taking. Okay. Have you well, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's not get uh, deep, deep into COVID, but it is an interesting thing what you're pointing out that obviously the, the, the current industry has a lot of challenges. There's, there's a contamination within the meat itself, and then there's all of the issues surrounding the workers who are producing the meat and, and, and all that stuff. How are you so confident that your type of production line can be immune to so many of those sort of bacterial shocks? Is it... It's because it is a controlled environment in theory, right? It is a, it is a lab, so so you know you are thinking every every morning about how to control these variables. So if if there was to be something foreign that entered this production process, presumably your sensors and your testing would would pick that up faster than you than you can. You're saying in in regular meat production, it's a controlled environment, it's a closed environment, and it's an automated environment. Uh, it, uh, it makes also things like food uh, tracing and tracking so much easier. Uh, you could even think to uh, you know, run uh, cultured meat production on a blockchain um, and distribute it through a blockchain <laughs> in, uh, in, in, a, in a population via a food coin. We talked about software as food. Uh, it's almost a digitalized way to produce uh, a you know, a, a meat right ready for consumption and it just has nothing to do with the um very uncontrolled and 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 half assorted ways of, of of livestock production and consumption today david i i want to kind of roll all of my questions back to to to, to one this is an exciting field. It is possibly a very important field for humanity. Certainly agriculture, ag tech, and food tech is, is going to reshape humanity one way or another, and it has to. How do you yourself, now that you are in this business, how do you track the evolution? You know, you said you are part of this cluster of, of uh, Flemish cultured meat startups, so obviously you have access to all of the 
executives in, in the other companies and you can track it. But what's your advice to either analysts tracking this field, people who want to get into the space, maybe investing in it, anybody who just wants to understand where food production is going? How do you stay up to date? What do you recommend my listeners and I do to track the synthetic biology part of this, the um, implications on the industry value chains, or really even just to make sure that they're uh, ready and, 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 and understand where, where this is going and possibly can take a role in it if they, uh, if they find that, that they so wish. Where yeah. should they go? Are there influencers they should track? Are there particular analyst firms that have something meaningful to say about this? Yep. What does the space look like? Yeah, so I think a great starting point is um, the study that I referenced before, Rethink X, Food and Agriculture Report. Um, that is just a, a basis, right? So, so to get kind of a common baseline. And then from there, for um, you know, audience that is really interested, for example, in different cultured meat companies out there and how they differentiate, I think uh, your fellow podcaster Marina Schmidt from Red to Green um, has interviewed probably around 20 uh, CEOs of cultured meat companies um, with, uh, you know, engaged them in very highly interesting uh, discussions. So I think that is a um, nice series of podcasts to, uh, to listen to. Um, also, I mean, obviously there are a bunch of impact investors, climate-focused investors, even food-focused investors uh, out there that have a very deep insight. I'm not going to advertise uh, you know, a specific one here. Um, or maybe we can uh, call out actually um, um, Big Idea Ventures, who's also running an accelerator at the same time both in uh, okay. Singapore and in New York, very experienced team on the plant-based uh, and cultured meat side. Um, and then other than that, I would just, you know, recommend to, you know, use social uh, portals such as LinkedIn. There are very active and vibrant uh, networks and food scenes there. Uh, reach out yeah, to the influencers. You will, you will find who they are. Um, it's, it's cool. It's, and, and lastly, David, I mean, obviously I'm going to link up your, uh, you know, piece of meat. I'm going to link up everything you, you want me to link up from your side, but how can someone help your company at your stage? What, what is it that you are looking for kind of medium to long term? You're, you're looking for talent. Um, yep. you're looking to scale up in some way. What, you know, what is your ideal, uh, growth pattern in the next few years? And w what is it that you're looking for currently from the external world, whether it's from the investment side, from the consumer side, from the regulatory. I mean, my audience is, you know, is is very wide that way. Uh, yeah. But if they want to get involved and, and actually help you out or help the space out, what can they do? Yeah. So for us specifically, um, we're currently uh, in you know in, in the middle of closing a funding round in order to advance the scale of production from lab to actually industry. Right. So that, so that's one thing. Uh, we're then looking for industry partners who are interested in adding, for example, cultured fat as an ingredient into their product. Um, and then are obviously also interested in partnering to, with organizations and, and, you know, let's say people of a, of a certain influence or following in order to create an awareness um, internationally about the new food product that will come out there. Um, there. And, and then the partnering, you, you have pointed out that you guys have a, a very specific B2B angle. So are you then actively looking for somebody in the meat space on the B2B side who are maybe yeah. on the distribution side or, or, or some other part of the chain here? So in 2018, there were 15 plant-based companies 
um, globally in Q1 2020, you had over 200, right? So, so the space is massive. Uh, and actually, we are being contacted uh, quite frequently um, by companies who see this as an opportunity. Due to our production scale, obviously, we have to be also uh, very choiceful with whom to partner. But if um, you know a plant-based meat producer understands that cultured fat might not be a threat, but a real opportunity for differentiation in the future when thinking about hybrid products, um, then we'd love to uh, talk to them and hear from them. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been fascinating. I feel like cultured meat now is going to go into my repertoire. I look forward to maybe being in your situation. You told me you, you eat cultured meat every week. That's pretty unique. Yeah, we do. We have to, we have to uh, yeah, drink our own wine. Yeah. So obviously we do a lot of taste experiments, right? Um, and, and we're continuously producing uh, cultured fats. Fascinating. Thank you so much, David, for your time. Um, and uh, best of luck as you are innovating in this space. Thank you, Trans. You have just listened to episode 36 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of cultured meat. Our guest was David Brandis, managing director and co-founder of Peace of Meat. In this conversation, we talked about the technology of cell-based cultured meat, the sustainability benefits of removing animals from food production, consumer trust, regulatory forces, disruption, and the future of food tech. My takeaway is that cultured meat is here to stay, although its introduction will take time and will vary depending on tech innovation speed, regulatory attitudes, and consumer trust. COVID-19 has brought about a renewed discussion about food safety and worker safety. Lab-grown meat does not seem as far-fetched as it once did. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.